Morning, New Hope family. Glad to see you here. Glad that you're here. If you believe that God's always at work, would you say amen? Even in the midst of COVID viruses, is he always at work? Absolutely. We just sang, in every season, I have reason to praise him. Every season. Even COVID season, right? Even what's going on right now, you have reason to praise him. To process and digest more of who this God is, I'm going to invite you to go to Luke chapter 12 if you have a Bible with you this morning. You might have it electronically, maybe you have a hard copy. You can always follow along up on the screen if you want. If you're watching from home, go ahead and get your Bible out. I encourage you to do that and you can follow along. If you haven't downloaded the notes yet, um, you can do that. Maybe you brought them with you this morning as you came in. I just want to remind you, if you haven't picked up one yet, the parable series is what we're working through, and obviously we're in the third week of it already. These are on that table in the back of the atrium, and you can grab one on your way out this morning. We'll be in week three, so that's what you're going to want to read this week, lesson number three. It'll it'll bring you up to speed to where we're at this morning. Before we um, dive into this in Luke chapter 12, I just want to pray with you to that miracle worker, way maker, promise keeper, and ask him if he would be the food for our souls this morning. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for every person who's part of this service, both physically present in this auditorium and watching virtually. We're still the church connected. We're the church triumphant because of what Jesus did for us. So we come before you and praise you. Your, Your word says that every word that proceeds from your mouth is food for our soul. So you said that we wouldn't survive by bread alone, but rather by all the words that proceed from your mouth. And we recognize we need spiritual food this morning. As much as we need the steaks and the salads and and we need all kinds of nourishment and we need water to drink, God, we recognize we need you to feed us. And, and the food that we consume materially doesn't begin to match to what you provide for us spiritually. So I pray that you would nourish us this morning. Strengthen us. Uh, let this be like a, a long, cool drink of water to our soul as you convict and as you inform and as you instruct and we listen to your words that you stated. We pray for that in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, if you're new here, we've been discovering how the parables function in the New Testament. Uh, Primarily, there's 43 parables, and we started back in October, and we're now in section three because we've been doing 10 or 11 at a time, and this happens to be the third section that we're into, and in Luke chapter 12, Jesus speaks of this particular parable in a really unique way because he does this. We know that parables describe eternity in heaven. Parables describe the nature and character of God. Parables describe the kingdom of God, but they also speak to God's God's expectations, his standards of behavior that he expects of his people. And that's the uniqueness in the way that Jesus brings this one to life this morning. If you're a visual learner like me, you need to see words to help you describe, understand what's going on with the parable. So in, in your notes this morning, and you'll see this up on the screen, is the word parabole in, in Greek. It's the English word parable that we use as well. And it means a comparison or a laying alongside. So here's what we understand Jesus is doing. He's taking physical realities and laying them alongside spiritual realities. 
And never more evident is what you're going to see this morning that he uses that technique for this purpose, taking the financial principles of the material world and laying it alongside the spiritual world. You'll discover as you work through the parables that 30% of the way that Jesus taught was using parables, and this is no exception here. In today's parable, Dr. Luke sets it up. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 1, he tells us what the setting is like for Jesus to teach this particular parable. And he tells us there's an enormous crowd that has gathered to the degree that they're actually climbing over the top of each other. And some of them are there because they have an agenda. Let's go into Luke chapter 12 and verse 1 and you'll see what I'm describing. He says it this way, after so many thousands, which is the word myriads, I'll come back to that in a minute. After so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, He began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, after setting the stage, Dr. Luke allows it to flow into what Jesus describes because it's nitty gritty. It gets right down to the dirt of things. And Jesus describes it this way, verse two, nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered and nothing secret that will not become known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the darkness will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered behind closed doors will be proclaimed from the housetops. Dr. Luke said the crowds were huge, huge to the degree that there's myriads of them there, and the word myriads means tens of thousands. So there's not just hundreds, there's not just thousands, there's tens of thousands of people who have followed Jesus out into this wilderness setting to hear from him. Uh, around Israel at this period of time in the first century, the, the nation has been raised in the propaganda of the Pharisees and the scribes, and I do mean to use the word propaganda intentionally. They've been fed a steady diet of legalism, which has been literally crammed down their throats from the days they were children, raised in that type of thinking. And the Pharisees and the scribes have caused people to drink deeply from the pool of legalism in the first century. So in spite of the miracles that Jesus has performed, and in spite of his powerful teaching, and in spite of his really engaging personality, I mean, Jesus is just incredibly clever in the way that he presents the material. The Pharisees still put their own spin on what he's done. They want people to perceive it differently. And so they begin saying to people, he's of Satan. He's doing this by the power of Beelzebub, trying to capture the hearts of the people and bring them back into the school of legalism. But the people aren't that easily fooled, and they're absolutely fascinated, and the mass of the population is still very curious because Jesus is still the best show in town as far as they're concerned. And so they're willing to follow him and go wherever he's at because he delivers the unvarnished truth. He's willing to say what other people won't say, and it's both stunning and it's compelling. And so they follow him. And I don't mean that they're followers that are sold out as followers of Jesus Christ like the disciples are. They follow him because they're entertained by what he's doing, and that's why you find so many thousands of people gathered around him. What you're going to find in Luke chapter 12 this morning is there's one word that's repeated, a particular word that really hones in on the issue Jesus wants us to be aware of. It's the word beware. 
You'll see this pop up on the screen, both in verse 1 and in verse 15, but just look with me at the screen right now. This word beware is representing the Pharisees, first of all. He says in verse 1, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is, which is hypocrisy. What do we think of when we think of leaven? Leaven causes things to rise, to puff up. So Jesus says, beware of that. There, there's a leavening, there's a puffing up that the Pharisees have associated with them, and it's called hypocrisy. The hypocrisy of the religion they're trying to cause people to follow after. But he doesn't stop there. He says there's another beware, and it's beware of greed. And you'll find that in verse 15. And he's going to link these two together. Essentially, he's describing the crippling love of money. So you can tell right off the bat that Jesus is going to talk about money, he's going to talk about religion, and he's going to talk about politics. Real easy dinner conversation, right? That's what everybody wants to be discussed in the setting that they're in. Well, Jesus is not afraid to go there. He's going to bring it up, and he's going to say, if, if you want salvation, if you want to know our relationship with God, there's some pervasive forces in this world that you need to avoid. And so he says, beware of hypocrisy and beware of greed because those things will damn you. Jesus is saying in no uncertain terms, it's the existence of hypocrisy and the existence of greed that threatens to damn souls to hell. And the two work in conjunction. Why those two? Well, because there's two realms that we're part of. There's the material realm and there's the immaterial realm. One is physical, one is spiritual. What hypocrisy is to the spiritual realm, greed is to the physical realm. So he says, you better beware of those two things. Those two things will do great damage to you. You buy into the wrong spiritual influence, meaning the wrong source of truth, your soul will be damned. And you buy into the wrong material influence, the wrong source of joy, and your soul will be damned. The, the deceitfulness of false religion and the deceitfulness of riches, they worked to destroy and many times they work in combination. Let me show you an example of what I'm talking about. We know that the Pharisees were considered the religious of the religious, the elite of the elite. They thought of themselves as the spiritual of the most spiritual. And yet, even though they think of themselves that way, look at the way the Bible describes them, Luke 16, 14. Now, the Pharisees were lovers of money. So the top of their priorities in their minds is religion, but God says, no, what's the top of their list is money. And you've got the two issues that Jesus is describing here. So the stage is set. Jesus has just unloaded on corruption for 14 verses, 13 verses, and now a man interrupts him. And he's going to make an attempt to compel Jesus to take up his financial issue. Go with me to verse 13, Luke 12, 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, Tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Now that really jumps off the pages here. What's the context for this? Why that? Now mind you, this is one individual among tens of thousands of people who are present. And everyone there has got their own agenda. Each one's trying to get closer to Jesus. They're stepping on top of each other to get near him. So you've got this crush of people that Jesus is teaching to. They're swarming around him, and he's trying to instruct people about the spiritual realm. And on the scene pops this materialist 
who can't wait for Jesus to stop talking about spiritual things. I've got a material issue you have to go after, and it's not a question that he brings up. It's a command. Tell my brother that he needs to share the family wealth with me. The situation is really typical. In the laws of the Middle East, it's known as the laws of inheritance, or what's known as the law of the primogenitor, the firstborn. The firstborn son inherits the family's estate and becomes the manager of the estate. And it's spoken of a lot in the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. But the law, as much as it's written and it's detailed, it doesn't cover every single issue. And so commonly, individuals would come to rabbis and say, Rabbi, I need you to clarify this. So what's going on is not so unusual. It's the way that it's done in this particular setting. Do you notice that Jesus is called rabbi here? Uh, you'll see this word in your notes and up on the screen, didascalus. This particular word is talking about someone who's an instructor, a doctor, a master. Rabbis had, along with their teaching responsibilities, uh, uh, another common trait about them. When they moved through the regions in which they lived and worked, part of the routine was that individuals would approach them about civil matters and want them to bring a judgment because the weight of a rabbi's determination carried a lot of water with the people of the community. And so they could say, Rabbi so-and-so said, you must do this. And many times they'd bring the offended parties with them into the conversation. Well, we find kind of like that's what's going on here. I'll explain that in just a moment. We have an elder brother who has control over an estate and a younger brother who appears to be ticked off because he didn't get the double portion. The law of the primogenitor is that the firstborn gets a double portion of the estate and then becomes a manager of the rest of the estate. But it's always done for the benefit of the family. It's not just so he can hoard it all and keep it for himself, but rather for the benefit of the family, the firstborn is to oversee the products and allow the family to continue to survive. And part of the purpose in that is that the estate would stay together. So let's say there's 200 acres that the family owns and they've been farming and it's an agribusiness. The desire of the father before he passes away or the patriarchs before them because land is such a precious commodity is that the family wouldn't divide up the estate but rather the estate would stay together and the family would enjoy the benefit of it. Instead of 50 acres going to one and 60 acres going to another, they would keep it all together. Well, in this particular story, the younger apparently wants to separate his share from the rest of the estate and be completely independent. Tell my brother to give me my share. Why? Well, because landowners had high status in the community. Landowners were revered. It was a form of commodity. You were a landowner, people listened to you when you spoke. And they they gave you not only credibility in the community, but credibility within the financial system. So he wants what's coming to him, at least the way he interprets that. We know it's true even in our generation today. Money speaks. Money talks to us. It speaks to us. And in his case, here's what he's hearing. The younger brother is hearing this voice of money saying, if you lose me, you lose your identity. If you don't have me, you don't have a future. You need me. I am your future. So this young man wants standing in the community. And he wants wealth. And it's obvious that his agenda is not Jesus' agenda. He's not focused on what Jesus is doing. He just blurts out, give me a settlement. 
Uh, obviously, he thinks his brother will listen, and I'll, I'll just go one step further. I'm thinking his brother is actually in the crowd because he says, I want you to tell my brother. And I'm thinking, how else could Jesus tell his brother unless he brought him with him? That's the context for this. Watch Jesus' response in verse 14. But he said to him, man who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you. Remarkable response that Jesus has because he's taking no legal position in this civil matter. He's a rabbi, but he's not going to render a legal decision. But he recognizes there's something going on in the man's heart, something underneath the surface. There's always an issue behind the issue, right, church? There's always a question behind the question. But that's what's going on here. Jesus detects there's an issue here, and the issue is greed, or what the Old Testament calls covetousness. He's coveting something, something that he doesn't have. He perceives he needs and he wants it, so Jesus detects that. Now, I say it's remarkable that Jesus isn't rendering a judgment on this because we're told that he is the judge of all the earth. Watch with me up on the screen, John 5, 22. All judgment's giving to Christ. He says this, for the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus will be the judge of all the earth. He's the one who sits on the great white throne. He's the one who determines every soul's destination because he's the one that paid the ultimate price. But when it comes to a family issue, a family dispute, he's not going to render a decision in this issue. However, he will render a decision on the man's spiritual condition, and he's going to tie it to money. In other words, Jesus is giving this kind of response. My purposes and your purposes, they're at odds. They're not the same thing. I'm here for a different agenda than what you're asking of me. Uh, back in verse 1, I said that Jesus pointed out the word beware. Beware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And now you're going to see the word beware again pop up in verse 15. He's, he's concerned that there's a corruption going on, a corruption in the spiritual world among the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and a corruption in the material world. And to that point, Jesus says in verse 15, there's a deceptiveness here and it's a liar and it's lying to you it's baiting you, trying to tell you that you find your worth in something other than what you find your worth in. Watch with me, verse 15. Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of possessions. And I said this gets dicey for us a few minutes ago. And it, it gets dicey because he speaks directly to our world. It's, it's not just true of the first century. It's dicey because these things, Jesus says, awaken within you something that may have laid dormant. It awakens greed. And greed become a, can become a replacement for God. That's why the Bible calls it covetousness. You want something more than you want God. I want you to notice verse 15 again, so I'm going to ask the guys to put it back up on the screen one more time. Guys, can you do that for us? Watch this word that pops up. I'll point it out to you in just a moment. Then he said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life, that word right there, his life, does his life consist of possessions? 
It's, it's going to seem like a rabbit trail, but just hang with me for a second. There's two forms of life spoken of in the New Testament. There's bios, where we get the word biology from. Bios is physical life. And then there's zoe, Z-O-E in the English language. That's the way we would spell it. Zoe is talking about spiritual life. So if someone says, I'm going to have my life taken from me, they might be talking about their bios life or they might be talking about their spiritual life. In this case, Jesus is using the word zoe, spiritual life. And when you read verse 15 in that context, you understand he's not talking about just your material life, your existence here on earth. He's talking about your spiritual life. In other words, he's talking about eternity. Your life in eternity, your spiritual life, doesn't consist of possessions. I'm going to step on toes for just a minute. I'm just going to give you a heads up. You want to go for the door, go for it now. But just hear me on this. I'm going to step on toes because Jesus did, and so I'm just returning the favor, okay? Hear me on this. In our world, we enjoy staggering prosperity. Would you agree with that? We do. I've seen third world poverty. I'm sure some of you have as well. Um, I've not only been in Mexico, Lori and I lived in Arizona. We saw prosperity, but we saw incredible poverty and, and lived among people of great poverty. But I've also traveled to Africa and I've spent time there because of the mission work that New Hope does there. And I've spent time in Nairobi in the Kawangwari ghetto where the poverty is so extreme that people are living in eight by 10 metal shacks, not knowing where the next piece of mango would come from the next day. Bread would be a luxury. Just a piece of mango, a half a piece of mango. And I talked with young mothers who had children in the house trying to figure out how to divide up a single mango among herself and her children. We don't know anything like that in the United States. In our world, in this country, in the West, we enjoy staggering prosperity. Our lives are filled to overflowing personal abundance because of the comforts of our modern technology. And the work that our grandparents and our, our forefathers did, the, the achievements of them and what they brought to us to this point in time, it brought us wealth unknown previously before other generations. You know that you have greater comfort than King Solomon? What would King Solomon have given to be able to fly from one side of the continent to the other just to see the United States from the air? Or, or what would King Solomon have given for a flushing toilet? I mean, just think about what you have, microwaves. We have staggering abundance within our country. We have so many possessions, we can't get cars in some of our garages, so what do we do? We rent space to put more stuff in. We've seen that arrive in the midst of our generation. Uh, if I haven't stepped on your toes yet, just hang on for just a moment, because I'm going to do that more. And I'm going to speak to myself in the midst of this. My heart is just like yours. Our hearts are super vulnerable to this issue. There is a sense, there is a feeling, I feel it in my soul, it springs up often. I'm sure it springs up with you often. There is this sense that if we have things, we're going to be able to be free from the worries of tomorrow. 
if we stack away more and more and more and more, then we're going to be able to feel a sense of freedom. And therefore, we'll have life and we won't have any worries whatsoever. It'll be carefree. And this is the very thing that Jesus is speaking about. He says, your life, your zoe, your spiritual life doesn't consist of the material things that you're trying to stockpile away. I was intrigued during the height of COVID, probably in April, I think it was, I went into Costco and they put these big poster boards out that said, toilet paper is not returnable. <laughs> All right? And the reason they were doing that is because people were stockpiling it. And I'm guessing there's some storage facilities out there right now that have lots and lots of toilet paper put away. Because people overbought, they bought more and thinking, this is going to give me security. It maybe it became, it became the new currency, right? How vulnerable are we to this? My heart is. How about yours? Do a, do a heart check on yourself. So Jesus is communicating passionately and really urgently on this issue. And he says, your life doesn't consist of these things. Real life, eternal life, it's knowing God. John 17, three, look at this on the screen. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, it's important before we dive into this component of the parable, because it goes really fast, it's, it's important to acknowledge God created a planet which has phenomenal capability to produce. This planet produces, it's been producing for thousands of years. All the things that we have have come to us from the created planet that God put in place for us. I like to joke with my kids that my Mac is a great gift from God. And they say, Dad, God didn't create your Mac. And I push back and say, oh, no, but he did. He created the sand that made the glass on the screen he put the metals in the earth that's used for the case. He created the gold that goes into the inner workings of the components. All good things that we have come down to us from the Father of heavenly light, Scripture says. The issue is what do we do with it? What do we do with these things that God's given us? What do we do with the stuff and how do we use it? So the issue here is not really the possessions. The issue is the attitude toward the possessions, Remembering that what you have in this life is only for this life. It's not for eternal life. Now, of all the generations who have ever lived on this planet, I think you and I, I think our generation is in the best place ever to understand this issue more than anyone else in history because we have so much more. We have been blessed so incredibly, so much more than we need it actually reveals our attitude. It reveals our attitude toward the stuff. And that's what this very short parable teaches. What do you do with what you have? Watch where Jesus goes. Verse 16, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? So we've got a situation where it's a year of bumper crops. It's really been producing. The rains come at just the right time, just the right amount of sunlight. The soil was very fertile and it produced a bumper crop to such a degree that this farmer lacked storage. So Jesus portrays this very wealthy farmer as having a good head for agribusiness. This is a businessman who thinks very, very well, apparently. Luke chapter 12, verse 18. 
Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. So rather than build out, he decides to build up. What I mean by that is he's taking down all of his buildings, and he doesn't want to make a bigger footprint on his property because he needs that for future crops. He decides to tear down what's there and build a bigger one and go up higher so that he can get more grain in. What that's telling us is he doesn't plan to sell the products. It's a surplus market. And if he sells in the surplus market, he's not going to get as much value for it. So he's going to hold his harvest back in order to achieve a higher price when the market is not flooded. I'm going to ask you this question three times. What's wrong with that picture? Before we answer it, let's go forward to the next verse. Verse 19. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. So since he has plenty of resources stored for the future, he can afford to relax. He can afford to enjoy his wealth. If it was 2020, we might say his 401k is fully stocked and he's insulated. Even if the market ebbs and flows and moves up and down, he's secure. He's not worried about the economy to that degree. What's wrong with this picture? He's a smart guy. You flood the market with too much product and the price goes down. So what do you do? You restrict supply. Control the market, build bigger, hire barns, store it all, put it away, control the supply and the demand. And next year, next year I'm going to make a killing. I'm going to let it out at my own pace when I want to. And I'll drive the market. And I will be in control of the futures. The market is mine. So implicit in what Jesus is depicting here is he showing this individual as really selfish. He's going to enjoy his riches without any thought whatsoever of his community. That's one issue. And without any thought of his relationship to God. So secondary issue is his relationship to his community. Primary relationship, his relationship to God. What's really clear here, and I I want to be super clear, I'm going to emphasize this twice, really clear, it's not bad when your land produces. It's not bad when your business prospers and makes lots of money. It's not bad to receive a promotion. It's not bad to receive a pay raise. It's not bad when your investments increase. That's not the evil that Jesus is talking about here, and that's not what this parable is describing This man is not called a fool because he's a productive farmer. And Jesus is about to call him a fool. Watch, verse 20. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So God inserts God into the story. And God labels this one a fool. Why does Jesus go to that length? He's just pulling out this rich landowner and saying, you're a fool, and I'll help you understand what he means by that. 
But he's saying to this individual, you've planned for your future without planning for your future. That puts you into the category of a fool. You've considered all your wealth and your future use of your wealth, but you failed to consider the biggest issue, eternity. I was reminded again how quickly life can end a week and a half ago, reading a news story about a CEO from a major corporation out west who was up in Petoskey a week and a half ago and was killed in a boat collision. He's on Little Traverse Bay riding a jet ski and there was a collision between the jet ski and the boat and the CEO was killed. And not that old of a man with, with children at home. I'm convinced that that CEO never climbed on that jet ski a week and a half ago thinking this will be my last day on earth. I'm not coming back to shore. We don't approach life that way. I'm sure he didn't. Our Father knows this broken planet needs godly, productive farmers. Our Father knows this broken planet needs godly, profitable businesses. Why then is he called a fool? What's wrong with this picture? He's not only a fool, he's a fool who loses his soul. If you go into the Greek language of this particular verse, the literal language for this verse is God calls him a damned fool. Emphasis on the word damned. He's given up everything. What is a fool according to God's definition? A, a damned fool is a person whose habits deny God. And Jesus says that's what's going on with this individual. So on one level, and I said there's two issues here, that on the secondary issue, on one level, what's good for business for this landowner has detrimental consequences to the neighbors in his region. Because when he begins holding back from the magnitude of his surplus, and apparently it's huge, his decision to hold back his produce will hurt the economy. And so for himself, he's insulated himself, but he forces the local economy to be completely dependent on him. Uh, that's just a secondary insight. That's not the major issue. The major issue is this. Jesus says there's a spiritual polarity. And the spiritual polarity threatens to tear you apart. And it's evident in this person's life. And we all have to check ourselves on this issue. A person is either leading a God-oriented life, rich towards God, or they're leading a life that's oriented toward possessions. And clearly this one has failed. He clearly he's not entrusted his life to God, but to what he owns. And here's the second time I want to emphasize this, lest there be any misunderstanding whatsoever. If you're successful in business and you've turned a $50,000 profit into a $50 million profit, and you've got the business to represent it, and you plow the profits back into your corporation and you're meeting the needs of the community and, and it's an expansion of worthy services and you're caring for people and you're meeting the needs of God's work, that's good. You've done the right thing. That's not the issue here. The issue is not that the man's fields prospered. The issue is what did he do with it? Look with me on the screen at this, 1 Timothy 6, 9. I, I know if you grew up in church, this verse is familiar with you. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. I've had conversations over the years with people many times about this and they misread it. They think it's 
for money is the root of all evil. That's not what the verse says. Go back and read it later yourself. The love of money. It, that's the root. It's a, it's a root in your life. So it goes on to say, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So it's not the amount, it's the attitude. I've known extremely wealthy people throughout the course of my life who have really intimate, vibrant walks with God. And I've known very, very poor people who want nothing to do with God whatsoever. It's not the amount of money in their life. It's what do they do with it? Abraham was really wealthy. Job was really wealthy. Lydia in the New Testament was really wealthy. The sin is not having the wealth. It's what are you doing with it? You build a bigger barn for use in your life to put God on display? To show God as your treasure? That's a good thing. That's, that's good according to God. But there's no indication in this story that he's rich towards God. He's building a bigger barn for himself with no thought of others, especially for God. So here's what he's saying in his comment, because money reveals your heart. Here's what he's saying. My treasure is me. My treasure is going to be used for partying. It's, a, it's about me relaxing. It's about me eating. It's about me drinking. That's my life, and my riches made it all possible. One more potential rabbit trail. Just bear with me on this. Paul spoke to this issue, but it, it may not look to you right away that he's speaking to this issue, but look with me on the screen at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He's quoting some famous authors from the era that they lived in in the first century. Paul's saying if, if there's no God, if there's no eternity, well then party hardy. Go out and have a good time, blow it all, use it on yourself. But there is a God, amen? There is an eternity. There is a resurrection. So what's wrong with his riches here? Well, there's no accounting for God and his plans just for himself. And the worthlessness of his really good business maneuvers, he's a very smart guy. The worthlessness of his clever maneuvers are represented in God's final words. These possessions, that stuff you packed away in your storage building, whose will they be now? Because this very night, your life is gonna be required of you. See, God only needs to take away the life of this one and you immediately see, it's very, very clear, the possessions are of no value. Look, look at this phrase, Luke 12, verse 20, who will own what you have prepared? <laughs> That's the materialist worst nightmare. It's all going to somebody else. You don't even get to use it for yourself. It's gone. It's of no value to you. If you uh, like the intricate details of the Greek language and theology on this particular one, just a sentence thought on that. The actual Greek language that words that sentence reads this way. This night they will require your soul. They, they took out the word they because they didn't think that people in the Western world would get it. But whenever God is spoken of in the Bible, he's spoken of in a plural sense. Elohim is a plural word. This very night they, Elohim, they, the Trinity, this very night, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit is going to require your soul of you. What are you going to do now? Your life is over, and this amounts to nothing. 
Jesus ended it this way in verse 21. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And here, New Hope, is where God does heart surgery on me, and I bet he does it on you, and maybe it's on a regular basis. What Jesus is asking for is that we would have a radically reconstructed attitude towards the things that he's blessed us with, towards this abundance of possessions. A radically reoriented attitude. Why? Because attitude changes behavior. How you look at it, how you see it. What is your attitude towards what you have? The first thing God's saying to us is, no matter how big your bank balance is, if you're not rich toward me, I don't care how much you have in your accounts, you're really poor. And that's why Jesus said, what good is it to gain the whole world if you've lost your soul? That amounts to nothing. So it's striking to me that you can be really smart in business and stupid where it matters most. You can have a great head, and I know individuals like this. They love business, they're good at business, they're wired for business, but they have no concern for the things of God. So it's clear that money in itself is simply just metal and paper, right? God created it. God created trees. We pull pulp out of trees. Pulp is turned into paper. We dig the earth. We pull dirt up from the earth, and in it we find little metals, and we turn it into coins, It's just dirt and trees. And we ascribe value to it because it's a currency. In our our community, we say it has value to it. Culture establishes it as currency. Therefore, money is significant simply because we exchange it for what we value. What do you do with your money? Well, you use your money for what you value. We value what we taste, so we exchange the, the dirt and metal, the paper, And the coin, we exchange it for food. We go to the grocery store, we go to the restaurant. Well, not so much anymore, but we do. We we value education, so we exchange paper and coin for tuition. We value entertainment, so we give some of our paper and dirt over to Netflix. Wharton Center, football games. We value the work of the church. So we give money to the advancement of the church. It's a witness. Where your money goes is where your heart's at. It's a witness to your life values. Dr. Piper said it this way. John wrote, the movement of your money signifies the movement of your heart. He's just echoing what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, especially when you come to verse 34. We didn't get there today. We're not gonna get there today, but just look at this particular verse. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It simply means where your heart is going, that's where your money's gonna go. Where your money goes, your heart's gonna follow. The two work in conjunction. So what does it mean for you and I this morning to be rich toward God? What's the opposite of laying up treasures for yourself on earth? And here's where I find great value in what we looked at last week. This is the strength of being able to do the parables in series. Last week when we talked about the parable and we we looked at prayer and Jesus taught in the midst of that parable the Lord's Prayer. Just think through the flow of that prayer for just a moment. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. 
And forgive us our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into what church? Into. See, it doesn't have to be a temptation about what you're looking at on the internet. It doesn't have to be a temptation about being in the wrong relationships. It can be a temptation towards greed. And Jesus said, plead to the Father that you wouldn't be drawn into those things that tempt you. That, that greed would take the place of God in your life. That greed would be your greatest treasure as opposed to God being your greatest treasure. So plead to the Father, God, would you keep me from that temptation? I want to keep you first at the center of my life, not the issue of the possessions. Deliver me from that evil. As a biblical community, and if you're new to New Hope, that's what we call ourselves here. We, we say New Hope, a biblical community. As a biblical community, we strive to give God our treasure because God is our treasure. And we don't do it under compulsion. That means not under guilt, but rather out of joy. So when it comes to personal giving, this is just the way I would guide you to close this. How you determine what to do with your possessions, scripture says it this way, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a laughter giver. That's the word cheerful in the Greek language. God loves a joyful giver, a laughter giver. Hilarious, it says. God loves a cheerful giver. Not one who's doing it under compulsion or under guilt, but rather as they've determined in their own heart. Here's the conviction for new hope. As a biblical community, if we are a group of Christ followers, if we're part of a larger group of Christ followers in the mid-Michigan area, if we're part of a biblical group of people, we must therefore understand that the movement of our money reveals your heart. That's what God gauges. That church, this church, and I'm speaking for New Hope now, this particular church, if that's true of us, we're gonna pursue God's mission. We're gonna pursue God's mission in the area of gospel teaching and in the area of generosity and in the area of mercy all to the building up of the body of Christ. That's what he calls us to do. And that would be a church worth being a part of. Would you agree? That's a church you want to be part of if it's focused on that use of possessions. So I want to pray with you right now. I'm going to pray for myself and for you and for everyone who's part of this service that will watch even at a later time, those who are watching virtually right now, that not only that God would do surgery on our heart on this issue, because he's asking for radical transformation. We're drawn to rebel against this very thing. But that God would drive home this issue deep in our heart this week. Would you join me in that prayer? Let's consider those things. Father, I lift up to you every single individual who's part of this service right now, those who will watch later and those who are watching at this moment, those who are personally present in the auditorium. Myself included, Father. that we would not escape your scalpel when you go to do heart surgery on us on these issues and try and justify in our mind the ways we've done things in the past 
That, that may be an example for us, Father, of how we're going to do things in the future, but God, I ask right now that you would cause us to stop, calculate, and ask ourselves, am I being rich toward you? And, and many of us, Father, would have to confess, no, we're not. And we want to be. Because as a biblical community, we desire to be what Christ called us to be. So, God, I ask that you would show us what it looks like to be generous to the community, generous to each other, most of all, generous towards you in the way that you work through your work. I pray for this, Father. I plead for this. This is one thing we can point to, Father, that would show us whether or not we're growing in our walk with you. So do surgery on us over this issue. And pray at the same time, God, that as you're doing the surgery, that you'd allow your blessing to encourage us as we strive and we press on towards the high calling of life in Christ Jesus. God, I ask that for your church, for the sake of your body. We ask for that in the magnificent name of the one who gave everything for us the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.